Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 101st episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is bringing back humanity to business. I'm joined by Mohammed F. Anwar and Frank E. Dana, who, along with Christopher J. Petre and Jeffrey F. Ma, are the co-authors of Love as a Business Strategy. Resilience, Belonging, and Success. The publisher is Lion Crest. Mohammed is the founder and CEO of Softway, a business-to-employee B2E solutions company to help build high-performing companies. Frank is a director at Softway, and like me, he is a fellow left-hander. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us, Dan. Hello. Appreciate it. Dan, it's so good to know that... <laughs> that I'm in company that I have. We're, we're basically family is what this is. If we're left-handed, Ex- we're family. Exactly. This is all about inclusion. Unbelievable. And, uh, Unbelievable. I so we, feel we, pretty we, excluded right now, but okay. <laughs> we will find a way to include you. It's going to be fine, Muhammad. I promise you. Okay. Yeah. I, I think you have a heart, so that means you can be included. There we go. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's let's start out with the obvious, which is uh, give us a brief, brief overview of the book. Maybe both of you have your own perspectives or war stories about how this came into being. Sure. If you like, I'll get started. Yeah, but, please. Um, so my name is Mohammed, and um, you know, I started a technology company back in 2003 when I was in college, pursuing my computer science degree. And in about 10 years of running the business, I believed I had hit the pinnacle of success. I was driving my fancy cars, flying planes across Texas, and. We had over 300 employees and I was living the American dream, especially as an immigrant from India to the United States. Uh, But something was not working. In 2015, our business almost went bankrupt. We were losing employees left and right. We're hemorrhaging cash. And I 
basically had an introspective moment and realized that the business was almost about to shut down because of my behaviors, my selfish attitude, uh, my greed um, for money had led me to mistreat our teams, misbehave with them, and create a toxic workplace environment that had ultimately led to almost the demise of our company. And um, we also had to go through our darkest day where I was forced to do layoffs. And I had uh, obviously never done it before and decided to do so in a very inhumane manner. I'm still reeling in from it, but uh, it was pretty bad to the extent where I had lost all confidence and hope in how I'd run my business any further. But I was fortunate enough about two weeks from then to attend a football game for my University of Houston alma mater. And at that game, I learned about the culture of love because of a resilient comeback win of a football team. I was impassioned to try and mimic that success in our own organization. And when I heard then coach Tom Herman speak of what had led to that resilience, he attributed all of it to the culture of love that that sports team had embodied. And this is about genuine love and care that each player had for one another. And they showed up on the field, not for themselves, but for the team members besides them. And because of that, I learned about the culture of love and it changed my mindset and my perspective and put me on a mission to try and build a culture of love for our own organization. And as I went on this journey, first for myself, uh, then other leaders began to join me and the whole organization began to rally around the culture of love. And soon our business went from not just surviving, but to thriving. And um, we were then asked by our largest customer to help them with their culture after witnessing our transformation. And uh, that's when we recognized that we had found our new calling, which was to bring back humanity to the workplace. We needed to help uh, transform the workplace where people could show up with their full self and bring their full self and uh, embody the culture of love that would lead to better business outcomes. And as a result of that experience, and as a result of training thousands of leaders across the globe on this philosophy and culture of love, um, we were encouraged by many of the attendees to write a book and spread the message and share our experience. And that's what led to the genesis of our book called Love as a Business Strategy. I know it's a long story, I, I but that's, that's a yeah. synopsis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think that's really cool, and it's very candid, which is one of the admirable tra uh, traits of this book. Uh, Frank, anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, I think when we talk about love, it's really important to define what we mean when we say love as a business strategy, because everyone in HR, like alerts are going off in their mind, and they're like, "This <laughs> can we not talk about romance, please, for one minute? Um, and, and you might think when you hear the word love, especially love as a business strategy, like Hallmark rom-com where the hot best friend is a soulmate or something, you know, but that is sure. not what we talk about. That is not what we uh, kind of create and what we aim to, to create inside of our company and for the clients that we work with, um, it's it's really just focusing on valuing people 
And yeah. we want to ensure that we're putting people first in every decision, in every situation. Um, and so it, you know, love really means doing things out of care for other people. It means embracing hard conversations and being able to have those candid discussions with people that lead to real results instead of, you know, arguing and bitterness and resentment. It means building processes, tools, and policies that align people with profit. And I think that's really important and something that oftentimes is missed as people start to get in the mindset of making money, they stop to see, they stop seeing the value of the people that are helping them get to those places of success. And, you know, what we've learned is that love isn't easy because software's problems, they didn't magically disappear overnight. They weren't something that immediately we flipped a switch and everything changed and everything was better. It took time and we're still working on it. And, and the idea of, of love really stems from being an action, how we choose to care and treat for the people around us, treating them as humans, as people with real lives and real situations that's that's really it and the value of love has dramatically transformed our company and has transformed the you know companies that we are able to work with as well well i, I love that phrase align people with profit and then yes your your acknowledgement that this is not easy there's that wonderful joke by garrison keeler of prairie home companion who said god invented marriage so you wouldn't have to fight with strangers there you go so so <laughs> even when you have love even when you have care when you have trust that doesn't mean it's just smooth sailing exactly um, there, there are things there are things to work through so speaking of things to work through um you know this, the the book is enlivened in part no small part by the fact that it is candid confessional and maybe no confession here is more interesting or more seminal to the book than Muhammad's infamous refrigerator email. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. So without without dragging Muhammad over the coals, um, because the, the book does acknowledge this, I think it would be interesting to listeners to to know a bit about what this entails and uh what it led to, you know, beyond what you've already mentioned regarding the book and the journey. So I, I can kind of speak to this, Muhammad. If Go you're for okay. it. Yeah, yeah, please. Go for <laughs> it. So what we what we realized is, you know, that, and, and this is, a, you know, we, we talk about it and it's, we laugh about it now. I laugh about it now. Muhammad still isn't really over it, but we got this okay. email. We got this, we got this email from Muhammad because our refrigerator in our office was, you know, not in, it was in disarray. Let's be honest. And we get this, this, this email that we actually posted directly in the book, like the word for word, it's a screenshot essentially of the email that we got that was sent to every team member in the U S and really the, the point of including the email in the book was to say, this email does prove out the behaviors that Muhammad, um, had, he really did act like this. And we have a document of his misbehavior in real life and the email calls into question your ability to clean your own home refrigerators. He says stuff like, really, is this the hygiene you guys follow in your own home? Disgusting. And, and it, what it really does is it, 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 it gives us a, a kind of an understanding of, Hey, this is, this is the, the place that Muhammad was at in that particular moment. Um, sure. and we wanted to be able to communicate that this was real because when the number one thing we hear from people, when they read the book is I've either been the recipient of that type of email from a boss or yep. I've sent that type of email and they start to recognize the impact that our behavior or our misbehavior has on people. And we want this book to absolutely confront as much real life um, stuff that actually does happen in businesses because 
the only thing we can do is talk about our real experiences. We we don't we didn't want to dive too far into the theory side of things because we had a lot to share from a practical perspective, but you'll have to read the book to read the full email. But all I can say is that it was a good example and reminder of where we've come from and where where we are now. You know, I, I thought it was remarkable. I mean, how many leaders of organizations would would make themselves vulnerable in that way? It really creates trust, you know, for the reader, at least for myself. Um, and it's interesting to me because it seems so often that anger is the only permissible emotion in the workplace. Uh, particularly, I'd have to say, from from male leaders at times. Uh, and a lot of it has to do, of course, anger has to do with control. And if I'm not mistaken, Muhammad, you do admit that you do struggle at times with wanting to control things, maybe mm-hmm. in ways that are detrimental. Is that a, a fair surmise? Oh, uh, they're absolutely spot on. I struggle with uh, control and not having access to information. A lot of these type of things as a business owner and a CEO, um, I'm accustomed to. And if I don't have it, and if I'm not comfortable with the information being provided or lack thereof, I tend to get triggered and uh, I can end up misbehaving in ways that is not always yelling or writing even nasty emails. But I have also sometimes played mind games, uh, sometimes even uh, resolve to apathy. And I can quickly share a story that I'm not too proud of. Uh, so when I was on this journey, you know, my default ammo is uh, verbal attacks uh, when I get angry. And many people, they may say they're not an angry person or uh, they may say that I never yell. And many people associate anger with just yelling and or screaming. But the reality is us as humans, we all go through anger, the emotion of anger, how we respond and how we act is what makes us all different. So yeah. some people behave in ways that does not look like you're angry, but you are still retaliating in ways like mind games and emotional abuse or disassociation and so forth. So as I was on this journey of trying to avoid this reaction from my anger, there was this one instance where an employee of ours um, he made a mistake on a project and my tendency would be to like question and berate that person. But in this moment in time, as I was on this journey, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to keep quiet and I'm going to ignore this person. Essentially, I didn't want to embarrass myself or the person in question. And a few days passed by and, uh, you know, I was not able to keep it and contain this feeling inside of me. I said, you know what? I'm just going to go talk to this person. And about the third day when I finally just walked up to the person, before I could say anything, he started crying. Um, and I'm like, wait a minute. I haven't even yelled at this person. Why is he crying? And I was like, what's going on? And he was like, Mohammed, I knew you were angry at me. I knew you were upset and disappointed in me, but you not talking to me for the last two days led me to have sleepless nights because I thought I was getting fired. Can you please just next time yell at me? Don't ignore me. (laughs) And that's when I recognized that, oh my gosh, not that I'm advocating for yelling or screaming, but you could be an angry person and do like even ignore someone and hurt them and lead to a situation where like this person 
had sleepless nights because I ignored him when he made a mistake. And so I think the organizations and the corporations, we've kind of found ways to be politically correct with our anger. And uh, we have conditioned ourselves to apathy or ignoring or disassociating because we think that's the least disruptive way to demonstrate anger, but it actually has consequences. It still hurts the individual on the other side. And so my whole point of the story is while I was very overt with my anger through emails and verbal attacks, there is a huge population in the corporate workforce where they have conditioned themselves to less uh, animated approaches to anger, but still have the same consequences yeah. as me yelling at someone. So that was the point of that story. And that was my learning. Oh, no, I, I absolutely agree. And, and the crying, of course, you know, suggests sadness and sadness. One of the main causes of it is you feel lonely. Right. Uh, you, you feel cut off, isolated and, and without hope. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I'm going to suggest, Mohammed, that underneath that anger, I wonder if it's not possible, if you look at something called Robert Plutchik's color wheel, anger and fear are on opposite sides, but they have a correlation mm -hmm. uh, in that emotional color wheel. And the other emotion has a correlation, too, is fear. We get angry sometimes because we're, we have anxiety. And, and I noticed in the book that in those long flights to India, mm. uh, you were noted for having sleep trimmers. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Which suggests to me that part of the anger is also trying to work out or avoid or overcome, cope with in some fashion your own anxiety. Because, you know, I've run a business. Uh, there's a lot of stress in running a business. There's a lot of anxiety. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Frank, in your case, uh, there was a fear as well. Um, and before we move on to some other points of the book, but I want to put this in personal terms because the book does that so well. Yeah. Uh, in your case, it's the imposter syndrome. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. I think imposter syndrome has been, um, it's, it's very prevalent in lots of different people. And, you know, what I've, as I've done more research about it and understanding it, it's usually, it usually manifests in people that are successful, um, from the outside, but the, but the individual looking at themselves going like, I haven't accomplished anything. I'm totally worthless. I'm incapable of doing anything as a result of societal standards or norms or whatever. But in my particular instance, my imposter syndrome came from not pursuing a four-year degree. And the reality of working in an environment where people were degreed, multi-degreed, and then beyond, and having to cope up with that and engage with people in a very real way, it was a challenging thing for me to even communicate that, that dirty little secret, I guess is how it felt, to other colleagues because I was afraid of how people would treat me or look at me. And when I had a conversation with Jeff, one of our co-authors, um, and, I, and I shared that with him. It was after years of working alongside of him, of delivering projects, of creating incredible content. And he just looked at me and he said, that's it? That's what you're so worried about? Like, are you kidding me? You mean all the other things in your life that have built up to this moment and that's really what's holding you, like, holding you hostage. And the crazier part is that I've known Muhammad since I was 18 years old. Like, he has known me for a very long time and... He was the person who took a chance knowing full and well my educational background, my pedigree, my experiences, and the work that I had done in lieu of going to college. And he gave me a chance to, to step into the role. And so my imposter syndrome didn't just 
kick in with other individuals. My, my imposter syndrome was also not even recognizing the, the level of trust and the level of autonomy and the level of capability that Muhammad saw in myself and me personally uh, to do the work and to get the job done. And it's, it's most beneficial to me to easily and clearly communicate my biggest, dirtiest secret to people in order to work through this imposter syndrome and having the support and accountability of my friends and my colleagues to see me as more than what I see myself as is incredibly beneficial to actually getting out of that environment. No, no, I, I, I love that. And you know, really what we need, and you stress this in the book, you need a psychologically safe place to Absolutely. work. Absolutely. I mean, you cannot do your best work Otherwise, it just it will not happen. But by the way, I got to tell you, so I, I've got a PhD and two master's degrees, but do not worry about it for a second. When I finished my PhD, someone said to me, oh, it, it's a it's a monument. And I said, well, more like a tombstone, actually. <laughs> uh, um, and, and I knew Jerome Robbins a little bit, the you know person who choreographer who created West Side Story and Fiddler on the Roof. And, uh, you know, he, he dropped out of college. He went to NYU, briefly said nah, and uh, went on to his his career. Um, all, all sorts of incredible people, <laughs> you know, learning lots of different ways. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that's something that that needs to be spoken about more often is, especially in the corporate environment, um, is these different unique ways of building experiences that ultimately create opportunities for job roles. And that's one of the things that we started realizing when we were beginning to hire people for positions. As we started to put like love and people first, we started to recognize that maybe... For instance, maybe people that would be better suited for project manager roles when you're managing people, what if they came from like an educational background and not from a project management background? What if we started looking at people's lived experiences as part of what makes their particular role or what could make their particular role great? And so one of the really interesting things that we started to do as we as we put policies in place in order as we began to transform was we started looking at the hiring process and looking at the lived experiences of people and taking that into consideration far more than just where'd you go to college? Do I know anyone that went to your college also? Are you, are you in this inner <laughs> yeah. circle? Because that creates an entirely different um, issue, to be honest with you. And what we started yep. to see is when we started to think about lived experiences, it brought us tremendous value when people were able to put their experience as in banking and finance or in, in um, you know, early education or special education, all these different things that could bring really incredible value to a work, uh, to a workplace and to a job role. Yeah, no, I, I was really impressed in the book by how you guys were talking about what you do with the hiring process, the internal referrals, the calling the person in advance, the first day of work is is a Friday. What, why is it a Friday? What, what, what goes on with the Friday? Mama, you want to talk about why Fridays yeah. are the best day to bring people on? So, <laughs> at least for our organization, we're a services-based company, and usually fly, Fridays are light days for us with less client meetings and customer obligations. And uh, Friday is generally the day that um, our team kicks back, and we're just you know uh, interacting, socializing, and um, just basically, uh, you know, hanging out. And we wanted to bring in our latest hires into the organization on Fridays because it allows us to give more time to the new joinees and be able to spend time with them, get to know them socially and onboard them 
um, and let them go into the weekend feeling good about joining our company and then coming in on Monday and starting the work. Because when Chris Petrie, one of the co-authors of our company, first joined the company, he joined on a Monday. And he walked in and I basically met him in the hallway <laughs> and I was like, oh, so you're joining today. Uh, oh. I was not expecting you. Why don't you go see the HR manager? And, you know, he was like, okay, where do I find the HR manager? And I couldn't guide him. And then he had to go meet the HR manager and the HR manager was not ready to expect him. And then, you know, he was just basically tossed from office to office because everybody was so busy. We couldn't really pay attention to him. This was his first day. Essentially, he had the worst first day experience of joining the company. And he basically committed to making sure no other new employee ever joins the company the way he had to join. So he instituted this, everybody shall join only on a Friday. And that is the only day we will onboard new employees because we want them to have a pleasant experience. We want them to feel welcomed because when people feel welcomed, they feel the love. And so Friday is why we chose the day to onboard new employees. Yeah, no, to me, it's just, it's just a, it's, it's a simple but brilliant tactical step because I remember every job I've ever had, I'm pretty sure I came in on a Monday and everyone was too busy and no one had time for me. And you yeah. just find yourself at your workstation and you're like, uh, okay, my stapler doesn't work. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a really, it's a lonely experience. Yeah, for, for Chris, unfortunately, like his his. Um, his name was misspelled on his email address. So he <laughs> yes, wasn't, I remember that. <laughs> he wasn't able to even log into his computer to get any work done, Dan. So we're over here trying to figure this. And what's great about, I think, the environment that we have, have started to create um, as we as we speak about in the book and what we're continuing to build is just giving people the empowerment to make changes. And, and if, you, yeah. if you see an issue that needs to be fixed, let's talk about it. And you know that that's that's I think one of the most important components and elements about the 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 book and the structure and the way we approach our our workplace is creating moments for people to be empowered and for them to also be vulnerable and and when you do that you give other voices a chance to step up and say this should be better this this isn't right and as a result of that you get transformation yeah, no, I, that's great stuff. In fact, I'm going to take those two terms, empowerment and vulnerability, and we've got time for probably two more questions. So let me go to each of those in turn. Uh, you have an exercise you found. It's these 36 questions to establish what you call vulnerable trust. I'm curious if some of those questions you found, you know, the most wonderful of them <clears throat> to to accomplish that goal of, you know, vulnerability, but vulnerability in a way that that, you know, does help the organization and people collaborate and move forward together. Frank, you want to take that one? I absolutely can. So I think to answer your first question around the 36 questions, this actually came out of a research study that was done uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And the, the premise was, can fast friendships be created through a series of increasingly vulnerable questioning? And so these research uh, this research study was conducted with lots of random people, to be honest with you, folks that had never met each other before and were invited to um, have a conversation where they walked through these 36 questions from one to 36. And as a result of this research study, some of the, some of the couples that were joined together randomly actually ended up getting married and inviting the research team <laughs> to the weddings. Sure. 
Um, ah. And we were very inspired by this. Uh, no weddings have taken place since we've done this, by the way, um, at Software uh, with okay. our clients. So just get, just a quick heads up. That has not happened. But the idea and the premise is, can you build fast friendships through conversation that is a little bit deeper than surface level? And yep. this, this, uh, this ability to connect with people is really powerful once you get past the fear of being seen as someone less than perfect. And, you know, when we talk about vulnerable based trust, it's really going beyond that person's immediate skill set, what you, what you can see, you know, that's predictive trust, uh, but yeah. vulnerability based trust is seeing someone as the potential for what they could, ab- or could do or are able to do and giving them a chance to do it. And if we just rely on visible capability sets of what people have done in the past, then we're not operating from a place of vulnerability-based trust. We're operating from a place of predictive trust. And that is ineffective when you're trying to build high-performing teams and a a company built around this type of culture. Great. The other one I want to get to was, I I really intrigued with this notion of spot raises, of people being rewarded, you know, in the moment for good work, not just waiting for the next annual review and so forth. Uh, There must be all sorts of practical implications for how this gets enacted so it feels fair. But I I was curious to hear a bit more about how this actually works for you or for any clients here recommending this practice to. Awesome. So this is something we instituted in our own organization, Dan. So uh, when we were going through our revamping of our policies and structures to, you know, map up to the culture of love, we recognized that people didn't really look forward to this once a year appraisal process, the whole a process of reviewing their performance and attributing, you know, raises to that performance once a year. And in our company, the process had become very convoluted in the sense that it was like a, almost a fish market negotiation sometimes between managers fighting and vying for giving raises to their favorite team members and um, also using past history of bad performance to dock people's raises and it was just really in my mind disgusting the way that the process was going and i was a part of it unfortunately so when we wanted to build a culture of love we needed to really figure out how do we reward people and how do we reward them frequently for the right behaviors for the good performance and not really make people wait for one year before their raise conversations come about So we wanted to create an environment where as soon as a person does great work, reward them. I have a saying from the Indian culture that you should pay people their rewards before the sweat evaporates off their skin after work. Ah, great. Yes. And and so I I took that philosophy. It's like we need to reward them instantaneously because that's only going to reinforce better behavior and better performance and encourage people to do more, feel recognized, feel valued, feel respected, feel included in the moment. Let's not make them wait one year after a good performance. So we instituted this policy. We were able to get the budgets to match up. We were able to create this budgetary process where we were able to issue spot raises every month to X number of people that we chose to and uh, keep doing that every month. And a person could be getting a raise more than once a year. They're not limited to once a year. And you could sure. get it multiple times in a year. And uh, it was just phenomenal 
how the process worked out, people were more appreciative of the recognition than just the pay raise itself. They appreciated that the managers would call them in, recognize their work and award them. But they always said, it's not the money. It's just the fact that you guys appreciated us and brought us in to recognize us is far more meaningful than the money. And that was the kind of results we had achieved through spot raises. That's awesome. And that's something we've been like talking to clients about, and they find it hard to believe that you can manage budgets with that kind of uh, <laughs> dynamic structure. Sure. But I, I love it because it's so much more organic and it has the appreciation and, you know, the comment about before the sweat evaporates from the effort involved. Yes. It, it just, it all connects so well and it creates momentum and momentum is emotional. Yes. And uh, it's not mechanic. You know, okay. Yes. I'm looking at the calendar and it's this day and we have to have the fish market conversation. Yes. So um, I want to thank you both. Uh, this is Mohammed and Frank. Uh, our time's about up, but this has been episode 101, bringing back humanity to business. My guests have been Mohammed Anwar and Frank Dana. They are two of the four co-authors of Love as a Business Strategy, Resilience, Belonging, and Success. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to the New Books Network, type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and you can find other guests that I've had on. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram that's appropriate to the subject matter of the day. In this case, I took one from Nicholas Sparks, who said, love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. Until next time, take care and be well. (laughs) 